Young Turk, Young and Thug. Still Thug. Wait. Hold up, hey, bustin' this in my nature Fuck with me, I erase you Fuck with only the real Fake niggas, fake you Pussy niggas don't hate you Never made a statement Fuck the investigation Give them hell like Satan Wow, what it do, man? It's the original hot boy, Young Turk A.K.A. Mr. Wait Hold up, Big Thuggin' You already know him right now You on Big Thuggin' Podcast, man Make sure y'all stay tuned You dig? We got something for y'all Coming up on the next episode Big Thuggin' I'm a felony with a gun Got out, still thuggin' The young nigga was droppin' The kid on the machine Or the melt nigga was droppin' The top of nigga was bustin' The know your nigga The auto thug I feel took With Terrence T. Mac McClure this is my synopsis. As a former cash money record high boy, I offer the auto thug agape about my life as a living testament of the young and thugging pain, struggle, mental maturity, spiritual growth, and my redemption. Tab Young Turk Virgil Jr. Y'all know me. From New Orleans Uptown Magnolia Projects. As a young aspiring football player, I dared to dream. And after developing my ability to and passion for rapping, y'all know the skills caught the attention of Cash Money Record Slim and the Birdman, baby. And they recruited the kid. After joining the ranks with Cash Money label mates Juvenile BJ and Lil Wayne, my presence helped create Cash Money Record sensational and platinum selling hot boys. With the international success, we were instantly bombarded with fortune and fame. But I was blindsided by the mixture of evil. Damn. Y'all gotta read the autobiography of Turk. And travel with me through my action-packed young life in the New Orleans Uptown Magnolia Project. Third walk. My years as a cash money millionaire. Y'all know about the heroin and cocaine addiction, don't y'all? The 52 shot shootout. Yeah, I escaped that in Memphis. The attempted murder conviction is sense. The auto thug I feel turk, turk, turk. What's up, what's up, what's up, y'all? We back, we back, we back, man. Y'all already know, man. You know. Today is another great day, and it's time for another chapter of the Auto Thug Agraphy of Turk. I hope everybody doing good, man. I heard they didn't open up the um country. Wow. They didn't open up the country. That's another story, man. You know what I'm saying? But um, right now, man, we reading... The Auto Thugography of Turk. And we in chapter 5. Chapter 5. Cash Money Churn. 1991 through 1999. We received three educations. One from our parents, one from our schoolmasters, and one from the world. The third contradicts all that the first two teaches us. Everybody signed with Cash Money had the flies whips except Wayne and me. We were both just too young and my mama definitely wasn't having it. 
In order to get my first whip, I had to first have my L's license. Wayne and I being the cheering that cash money as baby called us had become real close during these years while we learned the business from the sidelines, patiently waiting our time to shine. Besides spending our days and nights inside the studio developing our flows and writing songs, we passed the time tossing what still seemed like a million broads. We were cash money and everybody was throwing us the pussy. The old, young, real old, and the real young. The Holiday Inn on Veterans Boulevard in Metairie, Louisiana, a 10-minute drive from Uptown, was headquarters and where we tossed the majority of these broads. Shawnee's Inn and the Landmark Hotel were also frequently used for tossing, but the Holiday Inn was practically Cash Money's hotel. We all had heavy traffic of females from all over the South, but Wayne and my young ass would even try to toss bras that Baby and Slim would leave at the hotel after they smashed them, and more than a few times we were successful. One broad in particular I'll never forget because she was one of the chicks who was featured in our baller blocking movie. Slim hollered at her while on the set shooting. The exotic feature that made her memorable was her tongue. Baby girl had a long ass tongue like a real lizard. Shortly thereafter, down in the studio during a recording session, Slim was there with Miss Lizard. He was kind of acting like he didn't caught feelings, but she was peeping at Young and Thuggin's way. We both quickly communicated with our eyes, and when the time was right, we made our move into an available blind spot of the lobby. I'm now embarrassed to admit that, yes, for the first time in my life, Mr. Young and Thuggin got good head from a real lizard. The length of her tongue nearly reached the mid part of her neck once she stuck it out. We were getting so much pussy that Wayne and I created a game out of it. Everybody we tossed, we would keep their panties. And after a week, we would get together to count the panties we both accumulated to see who was the winner that week. These were the kind of games that the Cash Money Churn played. We even recorded a song called Toss a Bitch that got his inspiration from our little game. At this time, Wayne was green to the fact that I was messing around with drugs. It was a habit I had picked up around age 14. While I was at a DJ, my cousin gave me my first hit of powder, cocaine, but it was at my own request. Let me hit that shit, nigga, I said, as we was taking a hit. Getting bent on drugs in New Orleans was like a fashion statement in the hood. The first time I snorted coke, I loved the drain, and it made me boot up and feel cool as I was walking through the DJ. From, the per- from that point on, I didn't want to be without it. So when I was with Wayne, I would disappear into the exercise room and snort coke until I was full. I'd pop back up out of nowhere sweating like a slave faking in front of Wayne like I just finished working out. I've been sweating so bad that even after jumping in the pool, I'd still be sweating. Although I didn't know it then, cocaine is a stimulant that raises body temperature. If I actually had been going hard with the exercise after using it, I could have given myself a heat stroke. But what did I know at 14 except that getting high made me feel good? Some years had passed and I had finally got my driver's license. Wayne too. I immediately flipped the all-black Camaro with 18-inch Momos, identical to BG's that was all white. Around this time, Slim and Baby were going back and forth to New York negotiating a legendary distribution deal that took cash money to the next level. Baby left Wayne his drop-top jag and we were in it and stunting hard. We hit the interstate and it looked like rain could be possible, but we were dead in the middle of stunting and ignored the dark clouds and overcast skies, but both signs of heavy rain. Wayne was pushing the Jaguar hard when suddenly we drove into a downpour with the top 
with top of baby's jag down. Wayne hit the button to the top, but because we were going so fast halfway through the quick motion of the vehicle, the top got caught and was thrown off track by the wind. The rain was coming down harder and harder on this section of the interstate and all inside of baby's car. We pulled over and tried to get the top fastened down, but for some reason it was it was locking. We jumped back on the interstate, each of us with one hand sticking out the window holding the top down with Baby Jaguar looking like a bathtub. I just knew that Baby was going to kill us, but Wayne was calm about the situation and Baby never tripped. Not that I knew of anyway. We were spending a lot of time at the Holiday Inn on Veterans Boulevard, and before Wayne and I realized how quickly phone calls and room service could run wild, Baby was on another business trip and left us with one of his credit cards. After for a week, Wayne and I were retarded, reckless with room service and on the phone. For some reason or another, we were contacted by the front desk and notified that our bill had reached the $10,000 mark. I knew we had messed up big this time, but again, Wayne had talked us out of it some kind of way. As we got older and started realizing the actual financial scope of our cash money family and the genius of the company that Slimming Baby had created, I could do nothing but laugh at the fact that I was ever nervous about destroying the interior of any toy or messing up 10 measly thousand dollars worth of play money. That's all it was. And later it was revealed that after each of our antics, baby would always get a good laugh out of any mistake we made and would tell anybody with their earshot them cheering was at it again. A phrase we especially myself to this day still give him a reason to utter. Even though we tossed plenty of groupies of all ages, races, states, and cities, at the same time, Wayne and I both had girlfriends that we considered ourselves in love with. At this time, Wayne's girlfriend was Toya and mine was Renata. One night, fresh off the road, Wayne was bored and had the idea of us taking them to the dollar show. We all agreed that I got the hookup would be the movie we check out. And with that, we hopped in baby's baby mama green minivan. We entered the theater, cash money swagged out, and found us some good seats to let the movie watch us get our freak on. This was also the time that the fat next tail two ways were out. Wayne and Toya sat up top while me and Renata grabbed us some seats at the bottom closer to the movie screen. The movie started, and I was just getting in Renata Jean with my two-way shirt. It was Lil Wayne. I answered, and he told me he had some niggas up where he was sitting hating on him. Instantly, I jumped up, and with my know-your mentality, I wanted to sneak on a nigga just for playing games with my little brother. But Wayne just wanted to go, so we left without having to get down. This was just an early snapshot of how haters would later try us. Another time, we were all in Houston, Texas for a couple of weeks recording the Hot Boys Get It How You Live album. Bun B from UGK, who were cool with, who we were cool with, came to the studio to bless the track, I'm Coming. This was my first time being in the presence of that kind of greatness. Bun B did his verse in 10 minutes, a whole 16 ad-libs and everything. After the session, Wayne and I, who were always put inside hotel rooms with double beds, had two bras already waiting for us. So he was in one bed and I was in another. A couple hours later, after flipping them like quarters, they left. Wayne and I were known for tossing hoes, as we call sharing women. The two women in question were sisters that we would toss every time we were in Houston. It seemed like fun on the road in Houston as usual until we were back on the tour bus heading out. Shit, I mumbled to myself, scratching my groin. The feeling was better than the normal itch, but I didn't know what to think. 
Wayne was scratching too, and Baby and Slim figured out we both had the crabs. They took us to the pharmacy and got us some medication. Put it on and scrub it with a white towel, Baby told us. I followed his instructions and sure as shit stank. Small polka dot crabs were moving just like a real crab on the, on the beach. The lesson I learned was that there were things other than HIV and STDs, so it didn't matter if I strapped on a condom. But the allure of fast women and the rap life was just too enticing. Before I knew it, we were back on the road, back to doing what we did best. Still, we didn't stop tossing women. We just got some public pubic lights powder and waited until we were healed. And then them churn was added again. Baby, a.k.a. the Birdman, was really like our father. I had grown up under my mama after my daddy split, but I constantly soaked up the game from Baby. Even when he didn't know it, I was listening, watching, and learning from this man. Aside from getting a first-hand look at the business of music and how to write bars, I also learned how to be a man. When I was around mama, I would curse just out of respect for her. I wouldn't curse just out of respect for her. But being raised by baby, the situation became more psychological. Since baby and Slim didn't care we used curse words, we seemed to have lost the desire to use them. Now, that's a lesson in life. Even though we could, Wayne still never cursed on his songs out of fear of his mama, Miss Sita. But I was young and thugging whenever I stepped into the booth. Wayne little ass was able to curse in baby's present, but he was still too young to drink, but not me. I had Wayne by a few years, and baby let me get my drink on with Moet, Crystal, Ruby Red, and Absolute. Wayne hated the fact that I had this privilege and would get real mad whenever I came around him drunk. Despite me being able to do some things that Lil Wayne couldn't, Baby made sure he looked out for both of us. He used to have different women always cooking for his churn. Mia used to cook a big-ass batch of baked chicken and macaroni and cheese. We would mob over to her place with Baby and smash everything that she cooked. We ate right before we went into the studio, which was like being in heaven with the music god, the one and only Manny Fresh. Fresh with Cash Money Records in-house producer, and he produced every one of our tracks. Every time he was in action, this nigga would demonstrate his craft like a pure genius. Throughout my career, Fresh taught me how to record on that professional level. Not only that, he showed me how to have fun while taking care of my business. This he also seemed to have mastered. If while in the studio, Manny Fresh was mad, baby would yell out, What y'all done did to Lovely? Lovely was Manny Fresh's other name that Baby and Slim called him. Baby automatically knew that somebody must have did, done something because Fresh loved cracking jokes, laughing, and having fun. When it was time to handle business with the atmosphere still filled with love, fun, positive energy, Fresh would nonchalantly ask me to spit a verse for him while still enjoying a good laugh he listened. After he heard what he needed to hear, he would start with a drum kick that eventually became his signature mark. All you had to do was be serious about your business and the rest was history. Around the time Juvenile was recording his 400 Degrees album, we had a show in Nashville, Tennessee. Backstage, a dude from the way named Jimmy, a.k.a. Twine, introduced us to another up-and-coming artist named Young Buck. Right after meeting each other, Buck and I clicked up tight. We were all in the music game and hungry on the grind. Often, we were booked to the same shows on the road, putting in their work. While down in Pensacola, Florida for another show, we ran into Young Buck and back at our hotel room, some funny-ass shit happened. I had a group in my room who was so starstruck in love that she fucked the whole camp when I told her to. Shorty was a hot girl for real. Lil Wayne and I were sharing our double bed 
Rome as usual, but for some reason this time Young Buck had to stay in the room with us. So that was an extra let out sofa in our room, which really was nothing because we all were young and thugging and would have slept on the floor. We had to. I noticed that Wayne and Buck kept their distance from each other, but to me, to my knowledge, there was no actual incident where either of them was disrespected. Wayne was my little brother, and like I said, Buck and I clicked from the first time we were introduced by Twine down in Cashville, Tennessee. Now, my hot girl was ready for some action, so I told her to take care of Buck, and for some strange reason, Wayne got mad as hell. Fuck young Buck, Wayne Buck. He ain't about to do nothing. Young Buck was all over short and ready to go in, and out of nowhere, Lil Wayne picked up the ironing board, cocked it back, and was ready to swing on Buck with it when I jumped in between them to stop it. Old girl had Wayne by the tad up in there that day. I'm not sure Wayne and Young Buck were falling in love with the girl or if she was putting it on them. Or was it reality that Wayne and Buck didn't get along? You dig? Yeah, man. That's chapter five. Cash Money Churn. Y'all already know, man. The auto thug out of Turk. If y'all want the whole book, y'all know what to do. Go to lulu.com, type in the auto thug, I feel Turk, or follow me on my Instagram, hotboyturk underscore 32. DM me, send that $30 through whatever way you got, Cash App, PayPal, Venmo, Apple Pay, however. Make sure you send me your address and the name you want me to sign the autograph to, and you'll have the whole book. Or you just make sure you tune in next week for Chapter 6. It get better and better. Let's go to Auto Thug Agafield Turk. What's up, what's up, what's up, what's up? Back with another episode of one of the best talked about podcasts in the world. Big Thuggin' with your host, Hot Boy Turk. And you know, it's another Friday. So you already know, man, it's the Auto Thug I Can Feel Turk Friday. And today, we read about the gift, chapter four. Everyone has a talent. What is rare is the courage to follow the talent to the dark place where it leads. Coming up, it was New Orleans bounce music that I listened to for the first time. That gave me that feeling that I could and should start doing my thing. Bounce music begun in New Orleans housing projects and bars in the late 1980s. It was always played at the DJs I went to and was known for his uptown tempo driven beats, call and response style and booty bouncing lyrics. I started putting together raps over the bounce music beats. Then immediately I began bum rushing all the DJ parties and dances, letting everybody hear me do my thing. There used to be a lot of up and coming new rappers from Magnolia trying to represent Magnolia, but only a few of us were really able to rock the crowd. Brandon Magnolia Shorty, Six Shot Juvenile Magnolia Slim, who would always close out the performances since he was absolutely impossible to follow. Then there was me. Not only could Magnolia Slim rap, but he was also a well-respected street nigga. His song, I, oh, think that's the name of it, was our Magnolia anthem that always got the whole uptown hype. 
And all while Magnolia Slim performed it, the Noya would take their soldier box and hold them in the air with camouflage soldier rags, ready and always ready. And I mean, always ready to beat a nigga down without question. Magnolia Slim was like our Tupac and many Noya rappers have been accused of imitating and stealing his style. Back then, we had a radio show on Q93 called the 9 O'Clock Props, where you could call in and host while Wayne would let you rap two verses to a beat, while, while Wayne would come on and say, hey, you, what's your name? You're on the radio with your boy, Wild Wayne. Then you'll spit your first verse. Then Wild Wayne will say, the 9 O'Clock Props is on. Tell me where you calling from. Then you'll spit your second verse. I used to kill that show Monday through Friday, and the next morning at school, people would be telling me how hard I was giving me my props. Slowly, I was building a rep for myself. While I was paying my dues in the rap game, I kept an eye on my Uncle Blackboy, who had the streets paying him dues. He was getting paid. Blackboy hurt the mouth in 1995 when he flipped his brand new white Oldsmobile 98 with a blue rag top. It was setting on Vogue's. Everybody from Uptown who was getting money was buying mopeds back then, and Black Boy had bought him a new, a brand new one. His hustling had gotten so strong that instead of him staying out slinging rocks all night like he used to, he had a crew do that while he fronted out and sold only weight. As I got older, my mama became overly concerned with the way I idolized Black Boy. With that, she become so strict on me that I used to complain that she was treating me like a girl, but she wasn't trying to hear that. She known and seen too often what the ills of the projects would do. Anytime her motherly instincts told her that we were a new side of the know you bound, she would step into the doorway and yell, Turk, Travis, Rhino, y'all get on in here. Man, that was embarrassing. To have to punch the clock and go in the house all early. But looking back at it, we loved and respected mama to the fullest. And the fear of her that she instilled in us was for the best. I still can't remember exactly how I got the nickname Turk. But as I developed my flow throughout my middle school years, I would always refer to myself as Turk in all of my raps and the name stuck. I was on a rapping rampage, throwing down at hops, DJ battles, talent shows, parties, anywhere there was, an available microphone. The rap game was bubbling real hard for the Uptown Project collectively, and some real heavyweights were doing their thing, including Master P and his No Limit Soldier, thus making the rap game a realistic pursuit for young niggas like me from those same projects. If they can do it, then so can I. Football, however, was still my first love, but right after practicing stealing my football tugs, I would catch the bus down to the local studio to polish up on my flow. New Orleans rap and a desire to get my mom out of the hood were the two main motivating factors that kept me focused. I knew the odds of making it into the NFL were slim, but I didn't know how, how slim. I had a million to one chance of getting drafted. My plan B seemed more realistic and without my control. The first rap I remember writing is a song called This Is For Them Soldiers that I dedicated to my friend Bussy, who died after being hit by a car. This is for them soldiers out there while Magnolia. 
My nigga Pussy was a soldier from the Noya. He died at a young age, 13 years old. Uh, I was 14 years old and attended Green Middle School where I met B. Jizzle. At this time, Cash Money had already signed him and a member of their group called the Bee Gees, which also included Lil Wayne. Since everybody in middle school knew he was signed with Cash Money, BG had all the girls, which pissed me off, making me immediately challenge him in a rap battle. I had all kinds of rhymes for Y at any time, and I was dissing BG and the BGs hard because, to me, they held the title by already being signed with Cash Money. I looked for whatever I could do to create momentum. And since BG was from the 13th Wall and I was from the 3rd Wall Magnolia, I made it a 3rd Wall thing. Wards are simply neighborhood boundaries. Since the 1800s, the city of New Orleans was divided into 17 wards, and I was repping 3rd Wall to the fullest. Cash Money had a full roster that included Miss T, Pimp Daddy, UNLV, Mr. Ivan, Lil Slim, and their second female rapper, Magnolia Shorty, who introduced me to Slim and Baby while we were all at a DJ in the Noya. Magnolia Shorty stayed in the Noya, too, right across the courtway from me. I consider her as my play girlfriend, although it was only for a short time. She was real cool. Magnolia Shorty kept it 10 times 100 and was like, say, Slim, this young Turk that I was telling y'all about. Slim asked me to hear something, and I did my thing to this day. I still can't remember what balls I spit, but whatever I spit got me a business card from Slim, and the rest was history. I went from paying to see rappers in concerts to going on stage and backstage with the Cash Money family. I went from riding buses to local studios to being picked up by Baby and his black Lexus and taking the Cash Money's plush recording studio on Canal. Now I was Cash Moneyed up, rolling with one of the hottest labels in the game and the hottest label in New Orleans. When I came on board, Juvenile was there also, and his Soldier Rag album was Cash Money Art of the Day. That meant everybody on the roster was to focus and make a contribution to the success of Juvie's album. And if you fumble, then that was on you. Everybody would be given the opportunity and the same rules would apply. Therefore, Juvie's Soldier Rag album was the project that I made my official debut for Cash Money Records. I dropped the chorus for Juvie, You Did That Song, and I had a 16 on Spitting Game. Now, my first live performance was nothing that I could have prepared for. Might I remind you that I was still 14 years old, standing in front of a lawyer cash money crowd inside Club Whispers, located in New Orleans East. This wasn't the hops of rap battles that I was used to doing my thing in. The entire club was packed to capacity with grown motherfuckers, and I wasn't old enough to come anywhere near this place. The DJs I went to and performed that were always packed with people, so all this did was prepare me to rock any size crowd. I ain't never scared, so being nervous was never an issue with me. Every time I rhymed, I was in a zone. This was really the first time I had gotten a glimpse of how much power and respect Slim and Baby had amongst other street niggas. That was one of the advantages of being with Cash Money. We broke all the rules. Baby and Slim had to talk mom into letting me perform that night under one condition. I had to be back home before it got too late. Yeah, right. This was Slim and Baby. They called mom out of the concert at 3.30 a.m. And she was pissed and promised me that I would never do another concert. But I was young and thugging. So after a few weeks, I was back in the studio without mama permission. But Slim and Baby didn't know. 
For about two weeks straight, I was getting dropped off in a Noya every night and sneaking on a fire escape, going through my window without my mama knowing. After climbing through the windows for a few weeks, it was about that time to come clean with mama and get her blessings to attend our up-and-coming concert at the House of Blues, which was also a birthday party for baby. Mama slept on my request for a few days and finally said that since I was staying out of trouble, I could go. The crowd and energy in the House of Blues had the crowd at Whispers faded, but it was packed just the same, and everybody was there representing their set, Uptown, Downtown, 17th Tent, Wall, and the 13th Wall. The perfect element for a perfect storm, but fighting and shooting were normal. There wasn't one show without it, but none of the drama seemed to ever spill over into any other cash money business. Now, looking back, there were definitely elements that the cash money artists, including myself, were naive to, specifically regarding the people who were responsible for the frontline protection of cash money affairs, like one of the original hot boys, Gangster, who was also from the Noya and got his name for putting in work. Gangster gave Slim and Baby the idea of naming our group the Hot Boys, Juvie, BG, Wayne, and me. Since it was originally for them doing it Gangster, Hot Beezo, and Mosquito, they were doing their thing thugging. And, were doing our, and we were doing ours lyrically, just a younger version of what they represented. Slim and Baby acted on the idea. We put it down like never before, and the Hot Boys was on fire. With the formation of the Hot Boys, we traveled to Houston, Texas to record our first album, Get It How You Live. We were so hungry inside the studio competing with each other, bringing out the best in everybody, that it only took us a week to complete the entire album. Since we were in Houston, Penn and Pexel, the company Master P did a lot of business with, handled our album cover shoot and design, allowing us to kill two birds with one stone. In 1997, our Hot Boys album, Get It How You Live, dropped. We did in-store appearances at Peaches and Odyssey's record store. Crowds of people came out, lines of smiling faces of fans ranging from teens to adults. The feeling was surreal, knowing that people had taken time to come see us and spend their money on music we created from our lives in the streets that molded us. Some of the people had to stand in lines for hours, sweating to get a glimpse of us. We sold every album, Peaches and Odyssey, couldn't keep our album in stock. And it was the same story in hundreds of stores across the country. We chased the album release with shows all over the South. And there it is, you dig? Another reading, man. The auto thug I can feel turk about my life. You know? Might rough a few feathers, man. You know what I'm saying? As I read along to the next few chapters. But hey, if you're a part of my story, man, you know what I'm saying? It is what it is. One thing for sure, I'm going to keep it 10 times 100. You feel me? With all my fans, I appreciate y'all for tuning in to Big Thuggin' Podcast. And y'all make sure y'all stay tuned next Friday, man. Chapter 5. Well, I'm going to talk about them cash money churning. You dig? Make sure y'all follow me on Instagram, hotboyturk underscore 32. Follow me on Twitter, hotboyturk, the number 32. And follow this podcast if you're not following. And make sure y'all go get my album, man. The realest hot boy. And if you can't wait for me to read through the book, you always can buy the book directly from me. Just cash app, Venmo, however you pay. And I get the book directly to you with a signed autograph. Or you could go to lulu.com and get the ebook, hardback, or paperback. The Auto Thug I Feel Turk.
Y'all already know what it is, man. Thuggin'. What's up, what's up, what's up, y'all? We back, we back. Another episode of Big Thuggin'. You know what I'm saying? Well, we talk about everything. You feel me? Everything in the world, everything that's going on. The main topic that's going on right now is this coronavirus. When would it ever stop? Is it a coronavirus or is it a coronavirus? Only time will tell what it really is. But right now, man, we ain't talking about that. We on chapter three of the Auto Thug Agafield Turk. That's right, my book. Y'all can get my book right now directly from me. Follow me on Instagram, hotboyturk underscore 32. DM me, cash app, PayPal, Venmo, $30. Get an autograph signed copy, or you can go to lulu.com and get the book from there on ebook as well. All right, without further ado, we on chapter three. Chapter three is my childhood. As I grew older, I accumulated a small crew of friends from off the old side of the Magnolia. We got so deep that if one didn't know any better, they would have sworn we were a gang. Bruce Warren, Woo-Woo Taz, Patty, Greg, Cornell, King, Garrett, Jr., and I were all into sports. But we played everything like Googie, which was spinning tops, pitch-up tackle, and we also shot marbles. But our favorite game of them all was touch football. And we played all the time in the Taladana court, a.k.a. the TC. Woo-woo was a beast at spinning tops, and he used to crack a nigga top up. The object of the game was to chip the opponent's spinning top. The young thief of the crew, Woo-woo, also used to keep us all straight with his sticky fingers. The nickel and dime stone for Red and Louisiana Street called the Brown Derby often got a visit from Woo-woo. But from the way the owner embraced him, the last thing you would expect was for Woo-woo to be stealing from him. His mother was on crack for as long as I'd known him, and he had three fine-ass sisters, especially Chantel, but I was too young for her. In the Magnolia Projects, playing sports was the only alternative besides selling and using drugs, so our football programs meant everything to us. It also provided us with a legitimate way to meet and embrace other friends, but as our little crew who all played Together at Shakespeare Park with Coach Leo and Rubber begun playing with other parks, we slowly but surely started to less and less see each other. We remained cool, but we were just on different times now. Bruce Warren and I made our first original crew, and we remained close. Then I met Rat. The first time we met was funny as hell because to keep it 10 times 100, we were about to kick Rat's ass. The nigga took our running so fast that none of us knew where his little scare ass went. Eventually, Rat caught a case and had to go out state, but when he returned, he was kicking everybody's ass in sight for anything. He was now officially one of our homeboys. Another big homie that became one of my closest friends was Craig, a.k.a. Biggie. He stayed with his grandma Ruben and went to a Catholic school called Holy Ghost. Out of all of my homeboys, my mama didn't like Biggie the most because she knew he was a spoiled granny baby and was able to do practically whatever he wanted. At a young age, Biggie smoked cigarettes openly when it was unthinkable for me and unacceptable for my mama. But Biggie and I naturally clicked, and our bond was so strong that even mommy eventually accepted it. Mama's friendship with Miss Barbara strengthened also, so much that mama started attending church with her regularly. 
Although she never forced church on us, now that I'm older, I can see how she has skillfully incorporated the spiritual messages and lessons she received into us. Even in the projects, Mama seemed to be at peace without the material access. For a few extra dollars, she would braid the younger girl hair. Kiki, my girlfriend at the time, and her friends used to also come to our house to get their hair braided. Kiki was much taller than me and had hazel brown eyes. Back then, all the girls our age used to be scared to death of fighting her. I always felt we made an odd couple, but we still used to have plenty of fun. We would go swimming together at Shakespeare Park, and I used to go under her underwater to look at her. I'd swim through her legs, then quickly come up out the water and dunk her. When we, when we could, we would watch movies together at her grandmother's house. And when nobody was there, we would sneak, kiss, and hump each other like we were really doing something. To this day, Kiki and I are still cool. Shout out to the Magnolia girls. Usually, our crew went to the DJs held on Magnolia Street in Anoya, and they used to be packed like Freak Nick in Atlanta. Food would be laid out like a dog with crawfish, crabs, smoked sausage, potatoes, corn, turkey neck, shrimp, and pig feet. Club Detour by the Melf and Corner Pocket on Louisiana Avenue down the street from the Noya boat used to be popping. i never forget those corn and whistle school dances. Any and every kind of party uptown would get just as live and rowdy as a cash money concert where fighting and gunplay were the art of the day. Even our funerals were celebrations known as second lines. T-shirt printed up in memory of the deceased individual would read Magnolia and then it would include the date of birth and on the next line below it were words Magnolia out with the deceased date of death. There would be a huge celebration with the band marching behind the casket, dancing, cooking, smoking, drinking, snorting, you name it. During the celebrations we did it. Key's Food Store was another one of our hangouts, owned by Jazzy and Wiley, two A-Rap brothers, who on the inside were blacker than my black ass. These were two real motherfuckers. Of all the brothers embraced them as if they were from the Third Wall Magnolia. Sometimes the crew and I would all meet up to attend Super Sunday, and New Orleans Super Sunday had absolutely nothing to do with football in the Super, Super Bowl. Instead, it had everything to do with the ultimate Native American extravaganza, where they showcased their dance, makeup, Indian songs, and costumes. The event brought people from different sides of town together, and most times we end up seeing people we hadn't seen in a while. Indians from all over New Orleans would gather on Washington and Ferret to compete. They then competed on the stage down at Shakespeare Park for trophies that were awarded to the best in each category. The competition at Super Sunday was very serious and even had a reputation for becoming violent, but none of this stopped anything. What a lot of people who attended failed to realize was that underneath the costumes of feathers, makeup, and behind the songs and dances were a bunch of black folks strapped with choppers, axes, knives, you name it. They were armed with weapons to defend themselves against the challenging tribes. During one Super Sunday, it got ugly after two tribes squared off. First, there was a fight that seemed rather routine because there would always be fights that looked as if it was part of their performance. But when guns were fired, we knew that that drama was official. But the crowd of spectators unfazed by the gunfire remained intact like in ancient Rome. When citizens gathered in a coliseum to witness death for a sport, the drama escalated when one of the chiefs took his ex across the head of the chief of the opposing tribe. Super Sundays were wild and fun. Just normal occurrences to us. Only real niggas could understand the way things were. 
when you were from uptown. You dig? Yeah, man. If y'all want to read more, y'all stay tuned for chapter four. Or y'all just go get the book. Like I say, y'all follow me on Instagram. HotboyTurk underscore 32. If you can't wait to hear chapter four, you can always go to Lulu.com and purchase the book. You know, I know this coronavirus thing going on, but your book normally take three to five business days to get to you. You know what I'm saying? Like I say, if you get it directly from me, you get an autograph signed by original Hot Boy Turk itself. You know, until next time on Big Thuggin', y'all already know what it is. Stay home, stay safe. What's up, what's up, Big Thuggin? You already know it's your boy, Hot Boy Turk, and I'm back, I'm back, I'm back, I'm back. I've been gone a few days, you know what I'm saying? I've been taking care of a lot of other things. You know, I got a whole lot of other business I got to catch up with, but I'm back as promised, you know what I'm saying, to read another chapter. I hope y'all enjoyed the first chapter of the autothugography of Turk, you know what I'm saying? We're back with chapter two. Chapter 2 is Magnolia Projects. Check it out. Trust only movement. Life happens at the level of events, not of words. Trust movement. My mama Nuna had given birth to my brother Travis, and it seemed as if she and her sister had kicked off a mini baby having marathon. Nuna seemed to follow right behind Auntie Deborah with a baby. After Deborah had Buki, a year later, Nuna had me. Two years after Deborah had my cousin Buff, which was on the same day I was celebrating my second birthday, Mama had my brother Travis after that. Buff and Travis were close like Buka and me. Then their baby sister, my Auntie Kim, joined the baby race and gave birth to a baby boy, my cousin Mo. Grandma Evelyn's three-bedroom apartment was now filled to capacity and resembled a nursery instead of an apartment in the mouth. Therefore, the inevitable solution for the overcrowded apartment was for some family members to begin moving out. Auntie Deborah was the first to move to the Calio project with Buff Daddy, LB. But she left Buka to stay with Grandma. We bounced next. Mom and Daddy gathered their things, and like a real functional family, we moved into our one our own two-bedroom apartment at 3205 South Robinson Street inside the Magnolia Project, aka the Noya. Man, I can still remember my old phone number. It was 504. 899-1931. Immediately, Mama hit it all with one of our neighbors, Miss Barbara, who was real sanctified and had a badass daughter named Valencia, who was a little old for me. At that time, the Noya seemed to be jumping with way more energy and excitement than the Melf. Maybe I felt that way because I was now living in the Noya. I attended Tom LaFon Elementary School which was located right across the street from our apartment. I can remember my first day of school like it was yesterday because I was mad as hell that my daddy couldn't be there. He was one of the head chefs at the Hilton Hotel, and his work I was conflicted with my first day of school. My kindergarten class were well. I eventually met my homeboys, Bruce and Wernell, a.k.a. Wern. I remember when Wern got hit by a car and finally returned to school. Everybody was all around and whispering and perking like he was famous or something. His grandmother, Miss Glow, used to always bring treats to school for us. 
Bruce, on the other hand, before we became friends, used to have a look on his face like he could beat up the whole world. And keeping it 10 times 100, I wasn't trying to get on his bad side. But it was his cute-ass cousin, Laquivia, a.k.a. Kiwi, who had my undivided attention. We were boyfriend and girlfriend from kindergarten all the way up until the fifth grade. And whatever you call being in love, at that age, I was fully in it. I would give her all my little lunch money that my mama would send me to school with. Kiva and I were both pretty smart throughout our elementary school years. We always made the principal's honor roll, and we attended the superintendent's award ceremony every year at the Lakefront Arena and racked up trophies and certificates in recognition of our performance. I played in the band, and Kiva was a cheerleader. Also, we always participated in the Christmas and Martin Luther King Jr. programs that were a pretty big deal at Tom LaFont. When we were at home, we used to talk on talk to each other on the phone until we would fall asleep and our mothers would bust us and make us hang up. Back then, Kiva and I were the perfect little couple and we are still cool to this day. With the time I've been given to clear my mind and reflect, it was crazy how the Uptown Project all had a section that was considered bad and another section associated with suburban-style living. In the mouth, it was actually split into two halves, the good side and the bad side. In the Cali, the two sides were front of town and back of town. And the Noya called that two sides the new side and the old side. Both of my grandmothers talked about the bad sides of all the projects as if the residents were on some remote location in another country that the devil himself wrote daily and if there was isn't any truth to their claim then my uncle Kelvin Blackboy must have been the devil's right hand man Blackboy roamed the bad side of the mouth religiously slinging rocks all night then returning to grandma Bertha's on the good side only to sleep he used to dress his ass off and had some of the flyest clothes that were out then I was way too young to wear his clothes but that didn't stop me from trying to put them on Inside his closet, he had barely animals, polo buckles, adidas, and eight-ball jackets. He also sported a big-ass gold medallion, two four-finger rings, and a mouthful of golds. Black boy was getting money like a motherfucker, and he didn't trust anybody with his stacks but Grandma Bertha. One day, my Uncle Jerome got some nuts and stole from Black Boy. My little ass was caught in the middle since I saw Uncle Jerome put his move down, and I told Black Boy the business. After hearing me out, Black Boy slid over to Jerome's girlfriend's house and found her with the red roses and champagne. Immediately, a fight broke out. But since Uncle Jerome was fresh out of the penitentiary and on swole, Black Boy couldn't do anything with him on the fighting side, so he grabbed his 9mm and started letting loose at his own brother in broad daylight. Luckily, Uncle Jerome got away without being hit. All of my family sided with Black Boy. We were just starting to adjust to our new environment and friends in Anoya when Daddy came home drunker than 10 wine heads. Thunderbird was his drink of church. He and Mama fought it that night, which had practically become routine, but this night, this fight was different. Mama had always been faithful to my daddy, and she really wasn't a complicated woman. She just wanted the old man to love her. The night passed, and Pops woke up with his normal hangover, and right on schedule was off to work at the Hilton. But this time, when he returned from home, all of his things were thrown out on the Magnolia walkway. Mama had talked all that she would, had taken all that she would from my daddy, and he moved back to Grandma Bertha's. With mama now fending for herself, she got a job at some hotel making beds for minimum wage. She also received food stamps from Welfare and Wick to help her feed my brother Travis and me. Eventually, mama grew even closer with Miss Barbara. 
And she used to watch us while mama was at work. With mama's mind no longer focused on my daddy, she allowed a man named Ronald to fill the void in her life. A year after mama and Ronald started dating, he moved in with us. By the time I was seven, mama had my baby brother, Le Ronald. Looking back now when children of my own, with children of my own, and some experience with women who p- possess all kinds of ulterior motives and unpredictable personalities, I can see how daddy could have felt after mama moved Ronald in with us. Then not even a good year later gave birth to his son. But that never should have interfered with the relationship between him and his two sons after that. I vowed to never allow anything that my children's mother and I may experience to affect the relationship between me and mine negatively. Nevertheless, Pops blew it permanently with my mama. The new man in mama's life, Ronald, was a DJ and worked at a club called Rose Tavern located in the back of the town of the Calio Project, and he treated my mama like a queen. i never seen her as happy. We loved mama so much at that age that a sense of appreciation flowed from Travis and me to Ronald for giving my mama what only a dedicated male companion could. Not only that, but he was now helping her raise us full time. And keeping it 10 times 100%, we started having more fun with Ronald than we did with Daddy when he was around. Ronald used to take us to the riverfront all the time to swim and play in the sand. And it was also good that he had a car. Daddy didn't only not have a car, but he couldn't even drive. For some strange reason, Grandma Evelyn couldn't stand Ronald and preferred my daddy over him. But it was obvious to everybody else that through Ronald, happiness had entered into her daughter's life. A most important function that Pops failed to deliver on. So what's wrong with that picture? Maybe Mama wasn't hallucinating about feeling like the black sheep after all, huh? A couple years later, my baby brother, Le Ronald, was having a pool party in the Calio back of town with Big Ronald's other baby mama's son, who was younger than Le Ronald, might I remind you. So with tension and thick in the air from this scenario, Mama and Big Ronald got into a fight. Mama hit Ronald pretty good with a box cutter, but also received a few licks of her own that sent them both to the charity hospital. After they stitched Ronald up, he was released into the custody of New Orleans Police Department and charged with assault. After this incident, they officially broke up, and we were back in a single-parent household again. I never knew for sure if Mama knew Aaron before he went to jail, but after she and Ronald broke up, we started visiting Aaron down at the jail on Tulane and Broad Street. Aaron was a hustler like my Uncle Black Boy, and when he was released, he moved in with us. Aaron bought us everything, and to me, he was the best stepdaddy ever. He had the same kind of toys and gear that Black Boy had, like ballets, eight-ball jackets, four-finger rings, and chains. Aaron also had a 98, white with a blue rag top, and he had a two-tone Malibu. The only thing Aaron did different from Black Boy was he didn't sport the gold grill. I admired Aaron and considered him as my stepfather because he reminded me so much of my Uncle Black Boy, who I always considered as my role model. In the late 80s, the turf war between the MELF and the Magnolia had gotten so bad that the mayor of New Orleans had ordered the construction of a special neighborhood watch task force. The New Orleans Police Department had a policing trailer smack dead in the middle of both the projects with officers on bikes, horses on foot, and in patrol cars. This was the same time that I attended Tom LaFon Elementary. And since it was located in the middle of the Noya, seeing somebody shot a kill was normal for my classmates and me. 
Shootouts between the two projects occurred so frequently that during lunchtime at school, we would just continue doing whatever we was doing without fear. On this particular day, this lack of fear made it easy for me to go check out a DJ in our hood. A DJ is what we call a block party. Although I knew I had no business going, I went on the new side of the Noe in the 6th Street Circle, which was one of the most dangerous sections. Shots rang out. I had already snuck over there, and now I was in the middle of the chaos created by gunfire. As I tried to run, some fat woman ran straight over me, trying to move her children out of the pad of the gunman. When the shooting stopped, I tried to hurry back to the old side before my mama started calling my name like she always did after hearing gunshots anywhere near. As I rushed home, this stinging feeling thrived in my left leg by my knee. The sight of blood and the intense burning in my leg made me panic. I thought I was going to die. Yeah, I'd been hit, but luckily I was only grazed. Grandpa Johnny put peroxide on it and patched me up like it was nothing. But I was loving all the attention from everybody, thinking I'd been shot up. And you already know I played right on to it. Now, the first time I ever saw somebody shot, I was eight years old. The victim, a boy named Bobby. And I had just had a minor altercation one week before. Bobby was seven years older than I was. And I didn't know how... I let him talk me into letting him use my brand new Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtle Nintendo cartridge that my mama had just bought for my little brother and me, but he did. Every time I asked Bobby to return it, he would just spin me. I even ran down on him with a bottle in my hand and threatened to bust his shit. But he just snatched the bottle out of my hand and walked away, paying me no mind. Then as a last result, I threatened Bobby with telling my mama, and for some reason, he swiftly returned my cartridge. A week later, while inside playing on my Nintendo, we heard what, what sounded like a thousand gunshots on the side of our house. When the smoke cleared, Bobby was laying there fighting for his life. Seventeen holes filled his body. He fought all the way to Charity Hospital, but later on, he died. The next morning on the way to school, I stopped by the scene where he was shot up. Several bullet holes were embedded in the side of the project brick wall. Someone must have forgotten to hose the sidewalk down. Bobby's blood still stained the ground. All that day while at school, I thought about Bobby taking my, taking my game, and now he was dead. Although Bobby had taken advantage of me, I never wanted anything bad to happen to him, nor did I ever imagine that he'd end up dead from 17 shots. The Noya was something serious, and only the strong survived. Real talk. You had to always outthink your opponent and stay about 20 steps ahead. That's chapter two, man. I hope y'all enjoying this book. Like I say, y'all could get it on lulu.com. Ebook, paperback, or the hardback. Or y'all could get it from me directly. Follow me on Instagram, hotboyturk underscore 32. You get a signed autograph from me. You know, pay cash, y'all Venmo. Um, PayPal, however you, you pay digitally and, um, I could get it to you, man, you know, and that's how we coming. The auto thug, I can feel Turk, man. I appreciate y'all tuning in on my podcast, Big Thugging. Stay tuned for chapter three. You dig? Let's get it. What's up, what's up, as promised on Big Thuggin, I will be reading chapter one from the Auto Thug, I can feel Turk. If y'all been under a rock, I have put a book out about my life. You know, if y'all want to find out about the shootout with the police that I had, 
Um, my time with Cash Money on tour, the Cash Money Rough Rider tour. Time I was in prison. My growing up, growing up in the Magnolia. My heroin and cocaine addiction. Fuck it, just everything. You know what I'm saying? I'm gonna read chapter one, and you know I want y'all to take a journey with me, man, as I open up my life to y'all. And I hope that y'all, you know, find it in y'all heart, man, to accept the fact that none of us are perfect. You know, we all go through things. And, you know, maybe reading or listening to my book or hearing my story can, you know, help somebody in your life or can help you. You know, you never know. But this is chapter one for the ones who just tuning in on Big Thuggin. The Autothugography of Turk. Chapter 1. My Genesis. Understanding is what shows and proves the completion of knowledge and wisdom. Man, woman, and child. Understanding is a clear mental picture. It is the original child, which is the star. Life in the project was my only reality. My mom and I both were from the Melfamine. The MELF housing project in New Orleans, Louisiana. My mama Pamela, a.k.a. Noonie, was the second to the oldest of Grandma Evelyn's four children. Auntie Deborah was the oldest. Auntie Kim was the youngest of the three girls. Uncle Floyd was the baby of the family. Coming up, Noonie felt rejected by Grandma, who seemed to favor Noonie's older siblings. Although mama possessed a natural possession for school and was receiving a good education, the feeling of being an outsider even within her own home caused her eyes to wander within the projects. She was attempting to fill a void that she believed the loving household should have provided. Coming up in the late 70s, early 80s era in New Orleans, searching for love in the Melf Project could have proven disastrous for a cutie pie of Nooney's age, but she was no fool. Being raised in the project would tend to arm even the most innocent ones with a survival kit, and Noonie possessed the wits of a woman that doubled her 16 years of age. The average troublemaking juvenile seemed to turn off to Noonie, no matter how much in abundance they were throughout the mouth. She also quietly decided that, besides being physically attractive, the other qualification that any potential boyfriend must have was a job. She figured if her boyfriend had a job, then he would have very little time to run around a project like many other guys she witnessed doing so daily and despised. Noonie proceeded to analyze and observe the boys available around the mouth who were her age, which was in direct defiance of Grandma Evelyn's strictest principles. There wasn't going to be any dating boys while any of her teenage daughters resided under her roof. On my paternal side, Tab, a.k.a. Tab Virgil, was Grandma Bertha's third oldest son of seven boys, but she had ten children in all. <laughs> From oldest to youngest, there were Charles, Wesley, Tab, Jake, Clifton, Jerome, Calvin, the baby boy, a.k.a. Black Boy, and three girls, Pamela, Malene, and Ronnie, who was the youngest of the girls. The Virgils lived in the same section of the mouth only Rattle Street, which was considered the good side. Noonie and her family stayed on Clio Street, right across the courtway. Thalia Street and Martin Luther King Boulevard, located on the other side of the project, were considered the bad side. Killing and hustling were in heavy rotation there, the kind of activities that Virgil's baby brother, Black Boy, seemed to be naturally attracted to. 
Ever since I can remember, Black Boy was always hustling to support Grandma Bertha's side of my family. He was passing out 20s and $50 bills to us before we even knew what money was. And I guess you could say that even street hustlers have principles because Black Boy never hustled on the good side, only on the bad side of the mouth. Living across the courtway from Noonie, Tad was caught by her eyes. And with his gift for cooking, Tad easily found employment in a New Orleans restaurant-saturated area, making him stand out to Noonie. And if that wasn't qualification enough, he was also one-fourth of an up-and-coming street doo-wop group that performed melodies without instruments on a local level. Noonie and Tad secretly dated for the sake of Grandma Evelyn's opposition, but before long they figured their feelings for each other were genuine and publicly announced their love and relationship. The 80s were crazy in country, was so colorful and active. Even inside the New Orleans ghettos, a young Tad had no time to waste on getting high or drunk. His life was bubbling with ambition and vitality. But when Noonie suddenly announced that she was pregnant, his attitude toward drinking was compromised. To this day, nobody but Tad know for sure why he turned to alcohol. Maybe it was the heaviness of the responsibilities of fatherhood. Who knows? But one thing is for sure, young Tad never ducked or denied the birth of his son and his responsibilities, even with drinking now becoming a permanent part of his life. In New Orleans at Charity Hospital on the 8th day of February in the 1981st year of thy Lord, an 18-year-old Noonie gave birth to a healthy baby boy. I was given Tad's full name, making me Tab Virgil Jr. As my mother and father's first child, my birth affected both families from the mouth projects, drawing them closer. Early in Noonie and Tad's relationship, the Virgil family quickly embraced Noonie, especially Tad's sister Pamela, who shared the same first name with her. Having the same name, it seemed only right that they became closer than any of the other siblings. But after my birth, Mama was now officially a member of the already huge Virgil family. To both sides of the family, I, Tab Jr., was now just as important as baby Jesus of Nazareth some 2,000 plus years ago. My birth also helped completely break Grandma Evelyn, who was enjoying her second grandchild just one year after her oldest girl, Deborah, had given birth to a little girl, Neosha, a.k.a. Buki. With both grandmothers only a short coat, Way walk away, a game of tug of war had begun, but instead of rope, the two grannies pulled me back and forth. My first few years of life were as perfect as life in the mouth project could be for a family. Unfortunately, Taz drinking had picked up momentum. He even had a best friend named Sean that he now dubbed as his drinking partner. Sean was also Buki's father. None of this deterred Taz from being a father to me. As a matter of fact, it was during this period when Pops had never known a sober day that our relationship intensified so much that I had become spoiled, a spurled, like we say in New Orleans. And in an attempt to break me from my spurled, rotten condition, Tad abandoned me on a city bus. I was only four years old, and Pops was always intoxicated. We were riding the bus down Canal Street en route to the Lowe's Theater located on the Strip. Suddenly, the bus came to a halt at a stop, and Tad made his exit without me. Panic struck my stunned face and set my heart thumping harder and faster. Daddy, I cried and stood up. Daddy, the bus continued toward his next scheduled stop, and I watched my pops pass by me in the flash because I was by myself. The two-minute ride seemed like eternity. For the first time in my young life, I experienced the shock of being without the only comfort and protection I had known. 
At the next stop, as planned by Ted and the bus driver, a friend he known for years, he re-entered the bus to find me with my face wet with tears. Yet I was quiet, as if trying to figure out what had just happened. And perhaps the actual value effect of the bus incident on my little developing mind will never be made completely known. But for an intoxicated Ted, he was satisfied. I do, however, believe the entire plot by my father was for toughening me up. Eventually, we did make it to the movies, but I was glad as hell to get back at home to the MELF. For anybody not familiar with being raised in a project, this may of course sound ridiculous, but straight up and down like 6 o'clock, I couldn't have imagined having more fun coming up anywhere else. I had both of my grandmas only a court way walk away from each other. Right there in one project, I had seven uncles, five aunts, my grandpa Johnny, who was Grandma Evelyn's husband, and was seen like a thousand cousins. To me, Grandma Evelyn was never the woman that Mama described as the woman that raised her. I always figured Mama tales of being black sheep were a bit exaggerated. Grandma even sparred my cousin. Grandma Evelyn sparred my cousin Buki and me, who I was the closest to. Buki and I did everything together. We even attended the same nursery just down the street from the mouth called St. John. Of my two grannies, Grandma Evelyn was a better cook and used to make the best brown rice and gravy, corn and turkey necks. Grandma Bertha's cooking would always be gummy and hard. She gonna kill me from saying this. My dad and uncles had all been raised on her cooking, and they were all very well acquainted with her good and bad meals. No wonder they would volunteer to cook or help when one of the bad meals were on the way. There were so many miles to feed at Grandma Bertha's house that she used to place the bowls on the stove with our names on them. Now that was ghetto living. One Fourth of July, as I watched from across the courtway at Grandma Evelyn's, all my cousins were at Grandma Bertha's having fun, popping firecrackers. For some unknown reason, Grandma Evelyn wouldn't let me go over there. Boy, was I mad. I grew even more furious when my father took the fireworks he bought me and let my cousins have them. I guess the merging of both sides of the family caused by my birth had weakened over the years. There was a disconnect that seemed to be rooted in my mother. While growing up, she felt as if she had been overlooked by her mom in favor of her siblings. Now, years later, I was suffering because of generational drama. Yeah, yeah, man, you know, that's the first chapter, you know. Um, make sure that y'all tune back in. You know, I will be reading all through the book, you know, for the ones that interested. Y'all make sure y'all come back, you know, um, on Big Thugging, man. That was the auto thug, I can feel Turk. You feel me? Y'all stay up.